I think people miss that the art of pitching is persuasion. And I think I've been too much of a realist in my journey as an entrepreneur. I'd be like, yeah, I don't know that we can get to, you know, a billion in revenue, but maybe we can get to a hundred million. And that's not what people want to hear. They want to believe that you believe we can go all the way. And I think I'm a little bit too much of a realist to sell you a hope, a dream, and a lie. What's up, you guys? Welcome back to the More Rounds Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Lewis, CEO and co-founder of Chromix. And today we're going to be talking about how to fund your business, whether that's through credit, debt, cash flow, or raising money from investors. But today is a special episode, you guys, because I am actually going to be the guest in the chair, and I have my co-founder and life partner, Timothy Lewis, here to interview me. Uh, Timothy, we met in high school back in freshman year, and we started dating junior year, and we've been together ever since. We got married after about five years of dating, been married for almost a decade this year, and there's no one who knows me better. And honestly, he probably knows me better than I know myself. So I think this will be a very interesting episode, so make sure you stay tuned. And I, shameless plug, definitely check out Chromex at Ulta. Okay? All right, so let's get into the episode. Tim, I'm going to give you the mic, and it's all on you. All right, it's all on me. Oh, we got to do cheers. I was about to say, right? We got to... <laughs> let's do this. I'm excited. Ooh. You know, I don't normally drink wine. Yeah, but I, know. I drink you wine just, for you. You just do Hennessy. <laughs> <laughs> Hennessy, Martell. I like dark liquor. You know, dark okay. man, dark liquor. Thanks. All right, All right. here we go. Even here move. we go. <laughs> Let's do this. So we talk about funding a lot, but we also talk about investing. Um, I want to talk a little bit about investing in yourself for just a moment. Your personal brand has been blowing up this year. You recently blew past the 10K marker on IG, and we've got to watch you become a whole full course meal, right? <laughs> oh the my body God. is snatched. The wardrobe <laughs> is popping. Like, how much have you invested in this glow up of yours? I what was you. the strategy behind <laughs> it? Like, I would have you stand up and do a 360 so that people can see it. You want me to shake my butt just a little bit for the camera? Just a little bit. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you have to watch me on Instagram if you want to see me shake it, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, when you say how much, are you meaning like financially? Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about oh, it. Oh, my gosh. Let's talk about Because people always want to know, like, what does it take to be that amazing? Online, wow. Right? Okay. What does it take to develop the body of work? So I hired a trainer. I really wanted weight loss surgery, but I knew that I had dove down like the YouTube rabbit hole. I watched maybe 20 hours of videos of people who had gotten the like reduction of their stomach size. And I remember you not wanting me to go under the knife to, mm. to be fine. You're like, I don't want you to do that. And I was like, I okay. I you cheating like that. You know, whatever. And so no shortcuts. some people need a little help. Okay. <laughs> but I know you knew I was a former athlete and stuff too. So you were like, I know you can like lose it. But I did the, me- I saw that people's gut bacteria changed and it changed how they viewed it. They were so depressed after having the surgery. So, okay. And then I remember Fred, which is, you know, one of our team members back in the day, he basically was just like, give yourself two years, Kim. If you don't lose what you want to lose, then go ahead and get the surgery. But just at least two years, try to be healthy. And I was like, okay, Fred, I'll, I'll commit to two years. So I was like, instead of putting $10,000 in the surgery, I can put $10,000 into actual fitness stuff. So I hired a trainer. We got a workout facility. And now when you say workout facility, whatever, okay. Can you be more specific about this workout you facility. You claim you was buying me a birthday gift, but you really bought yourself a weight rack. I no, said, no, 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 no. You said 
I need a rack and some weights. So I got you a rack and some weights. See, you used to a lot of money on these rack and some weights. But okay, so we got that. And then we hired a trainer, our cousin, Raphael, for about $800 a month. He would come to the house four, three to four times a week. And he would literally ring the doorbell. He had keys so he can come in. So he didn't have to wait for us to get up. And he literally would call us like, hey, I'm in the basement. I'm ready to go. And you'd, I would roll out the bed and be like, all right, I got to get up and go work out. And so we did that for almost six months. So that really helped me lose like 30 to 40 pounds. So that was the first thing, $10,000 in the fitness. Then my team, y'all were telling me like, y'all don't like the way I dressed. I had heard it from our director of marketing. I heard it from our chief of staff. And then a friend of mine was just like, yeah, you don't dress well. And I was like, like, we feel like you don't represent the brand well enough. You need to like go and put on some better clothes. You should wear makeup. Like you don't look like a beauty founder. And as offended as I was, I had heard it too many times not to do something about it. So I started spending a couple thousand dollars a quarter on Target and Nordstrom Rack clothes. Now, I will say something. What? The temptation, because you was triggering like fraud alerts when you would go to Target, (laughs) right? So the temptation to like get that text message and be like, I do not know who has my card. Oh my gosh, shut up. This definitely fraud. $500. Definitely fraud. It wasn't us. So I had to go shopping and then I had to buy a bunch of new shoes from like Sam Edelman. I had to like, and I hate spending money on clothes because I feel like if I'm going to spend $10,000 on like my wardrobe, that could be a down payment on a house. Like I don't like spending money on clothes like that. And so for me, it was something I was fighting. I was supposed to be a tech founder, not a beauty founder, but I ended up being a beauty founder. So had to go spend the money on the clothes. And then, so we got 10000 for the fitness, 10000 for the wardrobe. And then to get, like, your lashes done and your nails done and um, what's that? Then your eyebrows done. And so your nails are like your fingers and your toes. And you don't want to be going every week. So I get something that lasts a whole month. So I get jail or whatever. I probably spend, like, $1,000 a month on lashes and nails and eyebrows and, um, like, makeup supplies and stuff like that, too. So... That's another $10,000. It's worth it, though. So it probably cost me $30,000 to look this good. That sounds so bad in a sentence. I, I Yo, hate saying it's, that. It's an investment, though, and it's been paying dividends. What's the dividends, Tim? You see the dividends. <laughs> All right. Now, a lot of people also don't know this. You talked about, like, we talked about your entrepreneur journey, right? Mm-hmm. So you are a serial entrepreneur. I know you probably don't think of yourself as a serial entrepreneur. When you say serial, right? do you have to be successful at each one? Absolutely not. <laughs> Actually, most people aren't. So, right? so when you say serial, that always sounds better. But serial, you know, there are serial killers too. Like, you know, serial doesn't necessarily mean good. It, it just, just means in a row. It means busy. Right, in a sequence. Yeah. So you've started some very successful things like Curl Mix and 4C Only. Um, but you've also had some not so successful things like... Lewis Lenses and the Natural Hair Academy, <laughs> right? Can you tell us a little bit about how uh, Shawty from 103rd funded her first business, Kimmy Clips? Oh, my gosh, y'all. So back in high school, I uh, didn't have any earrings. And if y'all know me, I feel naked without my earrings. And so I was in one of my, my English class, I believe, at the time. And I saw that my teacher had a bunch of, like, assorted paper clips like they were like lots of different colors red blues pinks purples etc and I was like oh what if I make some earrings out of these paper clips so I like unbended one and made it like a triangle with a hook and then I looped a bunch of paper clips on it all kinds of different colors and then I put a paper clip on the bottom to link them all together and then I stuck each one in my ear and so those are like my Kimmy clips I had 
paperclip earrings. And then I had bought this like bottle cap belt with like old school bottle caps, lots of different colors, reds, yellows, blues, pinks, uh, grays. And it was like on this like seat belt kind of material. And it was the belt I wore every day to school. I loved it so much. I remember this belt. You remember you know, this girl? You know what I re- what I remember the most? And this is the, one of the funniest things. Because when I first introduced you to my family, you were wearing some Kimmy clips. And my sister was like, what is in her ears? Like some arts and crafts? Like, girl, Vanessa's like- a hater. Okay. <laughs> Vanessa's a hater. No, I, I love so Vanessa. How did you start that business? Because you sold these things, right? I only sold a few pairs. So I started having like cylinder type paper clip earrings. Then I had like the triangular ones and then the square ones. And I remember buying a ton of paper clips, which we still probably have in the house from Staples. Actually, yes. There's um, a bin. There's, there's a bin of paper clips and it, it, I didn't, I didn't make that much money from this, but what it did was it made me comfortable with doing things that people thought were ugly. Um, it made me comfortable with exploring my own identity and creativity. Um, and it made me comfortable with just being like a creative, like, and, and knowing that everyone's going to have an opinion. Some people will love it. Some people will hate it. I had people who thought that what I was doing was brilliant. Um, but then I had some people who were like, girl, this is dumb. You can't patent this. And that people who were Vanessa were like, girl, this girl is strange. Who was you bringing to my yeah, house? It was definitely giving like Lainey Boggs from She's All That, like real artsy. There she <laughs> goes. There but she I goes. actually really, really liked it. I thought they were super cute. The number one question I get is, Kim, will you coach me? Will you mentor me? Will you advise me on raising funding? And it's really hard to do one-on-one things, but I am going to launch a community to help you guys fund your business. And the way you get access to that community is by clicking the link in the show notes, KimLewisCEO.com. And join the mailing list. You'll be first to know when I'm dropping a community so we can help you fund your business. All right, now back to the episode. Now, let's talk a little bit about Lewis Lenses. Because one of the things people don't know is you've always been a creative, mm-hmm. right? And one of the earliest business you started was a photography business. So, I mean, you did weddings, headshots, film YouTube videos, commercials. Where did you get the initial funding to start a photography business? And how has that you know, change the way you approach other businesses now. So after you were on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, um, we had a little bit of money that we put into the Natural Hair Academy, which was like a new social network for natural hair. And then we had a little bit of money to buy cameras. And actually, you know who bought me my first camera? My big brother, AJ. Shout out to AJ. Um, He bought me a Nikon. He was in the Army, and he would send gifts home sometimes. And he knew I loved taking photos. And so he bought me my first little pink Nikon camera. So that was, like, my first entrance into, like, photography, and I loved it. And then after that, um, my camera got stolen in college. Um, I left it in, like, the gym, like a goofy unlocked. With my iPod, everything got stolen, my camera, my iPod, all the things. And then, but I loved taking photos. It was just... my mom's a painter. Watercolor's her favorite medium. Sometimes she'll use acrylic. I love photography. She always encouraged, like, the arts. Even though my mom was, like, a tough cookie. Like, if you ever meet her, <laughs> she's a tough chick. Um, but she loves art. And so she made sure that we were into that as well as kids. And so I love taking photos. And then so after you went on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and we wanted to pursue the Natural Hair Academy, but we knew that we wouldn't make money up front, I was like, oh, I'll take pictures on the sides. So that's when I started. Oh, you're skipping a big one. What am I skipping? You had a real job as a photographer. Oh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, yo, yo. (laughs) I used to, so after college, I worked at Aldi and I hated it. And so I quit. And I needed a job to pay rent, though. We didn't have any money to pay rent. Fighting over a piece of bread. Yes, we were fighting over the end piece. I I threw away the end piece of bread. And Tim literally went off on me. He was like. This is good bread. 
why are you throwing away this bread? I love the booty bread. Who eats the end? Nobody eats the end pieces That's of the bread. perfect jelly bread. Let me know in the comments if you eat the end piece of the bread. I don't eat the end piece of the bread. So yes, anyway, we had to, I had to get a job. And we didn't have a car at the time, but the closest place for me to work was a photography studio across the street from my building. I wouldn't have to take the bus. I wouldn't have to spend no money on traveling. And, and it was across the street from the Starbucks that I worked at. Yes, y'all. <laughs> and this is crazy because, like, we graduated from college. What you had a degree? You well, you almost graduated. You had a double major in psychology, economics. Exactly. I had I a business degree. A <laughs> I had a business degree, and I had to go work at a portrait studio, making ten dollars an hour, taking photos of babies. But that is where I learned how to sell because it wasn't so much about taking the best photo. You just had to make sure, made sure the mom looked good in the photo because if the mom looked good in the photo, she's gonna buy it. She don't care what everybody else looked like. Facts. And you okay. Had to, you had to upsell, cross sell, exactly. all the packages, and then you would get bonuses and/or privileges based on how much you sold that week in the store. So that was such a lesson because I'm like, it's actually not about the product. Most founders think that their businesses are about the product. It's not about the product. It's about how you sell the product. And so, but in doing the photos, you got to get the kids to laugh. Sometimes moms would come in with triplets who were like three weeks old. And they would be crying. You know what I mean? Uh -uh. So you like, how could you communicate with somebody who can barely open their eyes and can barely speak? Like, you know what I'm saying? They, they, they just cry the whole time. So you have to like get their attention. You have to entertain them. So we had to learn different and we'd be standing there looking so stupid, hanging from the ceiling, jumping up and down. Like we used to make this little noise. Um, no shame in this job. This little, it's no shame. You'd whatever be on you got to do to make the sale. Whatever you got to do to make the baby laugh and the mama look good. And so mm -hmm. I would literally be like, like that is the noise you would make to get the babies to like look at you and be like and then laugh <laughs> so that would get you the that would get you the money shot every single time so I feel like that was a moment in my time in life where I like hustled so much and I would have kept working that job had they not accepted me to work Christmas Eve they expected you to work Christmas Eve because all the families come in, take their photos. And I wanted to go to Mariah, our friend Mariah Hill. She had like a, a graduation party or something, I want to say. Mm. And they would not let me get off. And I was like, bump this job. I was like, you had just gotten the money for once to be a millionaire. And I was like, I quit. And they were My man got two jobs. They were I'm out. mad at me. <laughs> they were mad at me. Um, and so, yeah, so then that was my photography. And so then after that, I was like, well, I can make money on the side. So we started doing portrait photography for like 50 bucks a session. Which is crazy because yes. entrepreneurs charge like hundreds, thousands now. And back then I was charging $50 for like headshots. I would show up at the park. I did some for our cousins. I did a couple cousins' weddings. Uh, I was not that great, honestly. But they weren't paying me that much anyway. So, you know. Yeah. I was, I was the assistant on there. I did not know what I was doing. But I made us look good. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, you talked a little bit about like selling, right? And that being one of your earliest opportunities to sell. But... In selling, you really do have to like pitch what the value is and then really get people to, you know, go for what you're trying to go to see your worth. Right. And I think a lot of times people get caught up in pitching themselves, pitching their business like it's really, really sexy. Like mm -hmm. you have this idea that you're going to pitch a VC in the elevator and that's how you're going to get your first funding and people are just going to fall in love with you. Um, but that's not how it worked out for you. Right. No. Now, you have had some success with VCs, but when it comes to pitching, 
You have, to my knowledge, you have won one pitch competition in your whole life. Why are you so bad at pitch competitions? Like, what is it? You know, I was about to curse at you. (laughs) (laughs) What's holding you back from greatness? Oh, my gosh. You know, if I was just as charismatic as you, Timothy, maybe I would have won one by now. Um, Probably. No, I. I did win my pitch competition. Which one was that? Chicago Cubs. You did win that pitch. At the first pitch at Wrigley, St- Wrigley I think Stadium. Maybe we've been doing this wrong the whole time, and you should have been the one pitching the business, and I should have been one running the factory. But um, I have never, I think I could do a better job at persuading people. Mm. I think people miss that the art of pitching is persuasion. And I think I've been too much of a realist in my journey as an entrepreneur. I would be like, yeah, I don't know that we can get to, you know, a billion in revenue, but maybe we can get to a hundred million. And that's not what people want to hear. They want to believe that you believe we can go all the way. And I think I'm a little bit too much of a realist to sell you a hope, a dream, and a lie. You know? Dream. Uh, you could say a dream. We're we going to save the world, right? Give us a hundred million with this idea. We're going to change everything. Yeah, and I think people have felt my my realism um, in that. And so that's why. So I don't even waste time pitching people in an elevator. Like, you have to imagine. The person that you're going to pitch in an elevator, if you're pitching VC, somebody can write you a check, they're being pitched thousands of times. So you have to be memorable. You have to be, and you're not going to be memorable by running off your pitch super fast to them in an elevator. You're going to be memorable by asking them about their dog, asking them about their kids. You're going to be memorable by um, making them laugh, you know, um, or like real rapport. or looking good because sometimes people notice that, you know, mm. building rapport. So I have focused. $30,000 coming in handy again. I have focused on. <laughs> you're ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I have focused on building relationships. And so knowing that the first time I meet you, you're not going to decide to write me a check, but making sure that I can meet you two and three and four more times, which is one of the reasons I travel so much. People will look at my IG like, oh, Kim is gallivanting all across the land. And it's like, no, I'm making friends because I think friends are greater than financials and friends lead to greater finances. Um, They will bring your names up for opportunities. They will make sure you get the money. And so. Right. So your strategy when it comes to getting investors to believe in you and persuading investors is more like a long-term absolutely long game build relationship strategy. So what are some of the tactics that go along with that? So yeah, that sounds nice, but what have you actually done to help foster relationships with potential investors before they give you the check? What's up you guys. For many of you who don't know, I'm Kim CEO and co-founder of Curl Mix, where we help you master your curls in 21 days. Curl Mix is what makes this podcast possible and it helps you get the best wash and go ever. So if you like my hair when you're watching the show, that is what got it here. We are now available in Ulta, you guys. Yes, it is our first retailer ever and it's doing amazing and I would love your support if you would go out to Ulta and try Curl Mix. All right, you guys, now back to the episode. My favorite example is Arlen, who was on the cover of Fast Company and recently Black Enterprise. But To build long-term relationships, it is not about the check today. It is about actually caring about people. So I saw an event in a Facebook group, and I was like, oh, it's only 40 bucks to go, but I saw it had a great list of people that were going to be there. And then I saw that Arlen was going to be there. I didn't even know who Arlen was. She wasn't even popular back then. And so this is her first speaking event ever. So I wasn't really going for Arlen. I was going for a bunch of other people. And... We basically sat down, and you got to meet her. I had to leave early, but you you kind of talked me up to her or whatever. I did the pitch. You did the pitch, right, man? You're uh, the two for two. Oh my gosh, Let's we've been do doing it. this wrong the whole time. 
You should have been the one pitching. But she was enamored by you and then was like, all right, I'll keep you guys on my radar. And so, essentially, I maintained that relationship with Arlen after that, though. I would send her monthly updates, trailing three months revenue, um, projections of the next month, biggest three biggest wins, three biggest problems. And then uh, that was it. I would do that for like 12 months before I actually asked her for any money. When we first met Arlen, we were still doing the DIY box. Exactly. This is before we even pivoted to do what Chromex is today. And I think that is so um, exemplary or just a great example of funding is the long game. Or at least I've played the long game. Now, there's some downsides to that, too. We grew slower. We grew slower because I played the long game. And some people were like, lots of checks very, very quickly, which means you can grow a little bit faster. But growing more slowly and more methodically meant that I think maybe we made fewer mistakes than we had if we had kind of like boom and bust. You know. Speaking of boom and bust, that's a great point. If you are raising money slowly, right, there are going to be some times where you more bust than boom, right? Mm-hmm. So what is one of the times where you feel like you – got funding into the business like right on time, like your most clutch funding. You you know, three seconds left in the half, right? You know, game seven, whatever, it came in right on time. What was that? I've never gotten money where we just had money in the bank already. So every time mm. we've gotten money, it's always been in the nick of time. Mm. Um, like more recently, we just closed our first institutional round of money. It was a few million dollars, and it was right before the Ulta photo shoot that we were going to have. And it was supposed to come in a few months earlier, but it took a while to get there. And we literally had models booked, people flying in. We had not paid for the venue for the actual photo shoot. We had not paid the models. We had not paid the photographer. We had not paid anybody. And this is like a $60,000 shoot. And we had missed payroll. It was so many things that we had not paid for. And I was waiting for the money to come in. Um, I was on the floor crying the day before because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to tell everybody if we show up to the shoot and nobody's been paid. And literally the check cleared like that Friday morning and the shoot was on Saturday. Um, And so that was the most um, difficult time recently in the business because it was me trying to reassure everyone that the money was coming, that, you know, I'm not making this up. Like, you know, there's real money on the other end of this. And it was just really stressful. Um, But every time we've gotten a check, it was like almost always in the nick of time. And I don't recommend that, but I think a lot of founders, especially black founders, have that same story. And they just won't tell you unless you bring it up to them first or you empathize and you've been there before. But a lot of like even recently I had a friend just told me she almost died last month, her company. Or <laughs> I was talking gotta, about burn flip, rate. Flip the script on that one. <laughs> no, she said, I'm oh, sorry. Her company almost died. Not she almost died. Her company almost died. Or even like uh, Ryan from the gathering spot, he was on his uh, previous episode and he was saying the same thing that like, um, burn rate. He's like, what do you mean burn rate? He's like, we don't have, if we don't make money today. We're going to die. I cannot pay people. So that, um, reminds me of like the hard thing about hard things. Yeah. Right. It's not just black and brown founders. It's, all founders, right? Even mm-hmm. some of the biggest companies go to zero with regularity, right? Yeah, Silicon Valley Bank, they went to zero. I literally had $20,000 in that bank. They would not let me access it because they had, basically, they had a, they, a lot of their people who had accounts with them lost faith in them and was pulling their money out, and they were losing more f- money faster than they had actually had in the bank. And so they went to zero. 
and they got bailed out by the bank and then purchased by another bank, et cetera. But like billion dollar companies go to zero as well. Exactly. So you talked about a couple of times where you secured the bag. Was there ever a time where you fumbled the bag, like your biggest missed opportunity in funding? How big was it? And then what was the story behind it? So, yes, I think about this often. And I think about what if I had said something different to this investor? So back when we had went from $1 million to $5 million in revenue, and I was going back out on the proud, this is before George Floyd, this is like top of 2020. I got to meet with uh, the guy who manages finances for Scooter Braun. So Scooter Braun is Taylor Swift's um, manager, right? Or was. Was her manager. And... He had a lot of money. He was investing in a lot of startups. And I had a chance to talk with him. And he basically was like, you know, I'm not so sure about what you're doing, but I'll give you a million dollars. He was like, you just got to find a lead. And, but he just said it so flippantly that was just like, I'm going to just give you a meal. Yeah, like it wasn't like a that million. important to him. And so, Nothing. and I remember thinking to myself like, huh, okay, I could go and try to get like a lead and I could do all this. And I was like, but the way he said that, I don't think I want his money. And so I was just like, I'm going to have to find another way. And I never really tell people that he kind of softly agreed to like, it was a soft circle check of a million dollars, but because that could have led me down a different path. I also got the chance to talk to Danny Reimer shortly after Shark Tank. Danny Reimer is an early investor in like Nasty Gal and Glossier. And, you know, Jeff Weiner, the former CEO of LinkedIn, he introduced me to Danny Reimer. So Danny Reimer is like, He's held in really high regard in the tech and venture space. Um, and he's invested in some of the high, you know, highest growth CPG companies. And he set me in front of him and, and to pitch. And my dumb ass told him I wasn't raising no money. And I Ooh, was like. <laughs> I remember that. I was like. Always be closing. Oh, my God. And, and it was because I thought you had to wait a year after you raised money. So I raised a million dollars. I need to wait a year. And I didn't know you could raise in succession like that. You could raise, you know. If you raise money yesterday, it doesn't matter if the valuation went up today. Today is not yesterday is not today's price. You know, <laughs> yesterday's price not today's there we go. price. <laughs> I, I didn't know that, and so that was another bag that I lost. So probably in the millions of dollars. Oh my goodness! You say it keeps you up at night. You know, the one I always think about when it comes to fumbling the bag is the crowd fund, right? So wait, I fumbled the bag with the crowd. Let's we gonna talk about it. I was going, right? What you telling on me for? What so, I do? The interesting thing is we executed extremely quickly. On the crowdfund, right? I I, I want to commend you, number one, right? We learned about crowdfunding, and then within like a month, we had up a crowdfund, right? It was it was kind of nuts, but the rules and the laws were changing so fast, we kind of like first person through the door gets shot, right? We hit <laughs> we hit the we hit some speed bumps to say the least, and I think one of the speed bumps might have been like half a million. Mm. You want to talk about that? Oh. You know, I don't blame myself for that though. Mm. I, I blame um, the laws. I blame I, I blame a few people, but I don't blame myself for that one. But I will tell you, yes, I fumbled about a half a million dollars by putting my faith in others. So when we first launched our first crowdfund, we thought that all you we were told that all you needed was a financial review. So a financial review is very different than a financial audit. A review takes two weeks. An accountant just has to look over and say, "Hey, these numbers make sense. This looks about right. This is cool." An audit of Gap Financials doing more than $5 million in revenue for a manufacturing company takes months, absolutely months. We launched our crowdfunding campaign and thinking that we needed a review, did the review, but we actually needed an audit. And so 
even though we raised like $4 million in the first week, we couldn't touch none of that money until that audit was done. And that audit didn't start until after we had raised the $4 million. So that meant that we had to go through the audit. And then once we went through the audit, which took like three or four months, absolutely insane. Once we did the audit, then we had to wait 21 days from after we upload the paperwork. And so once we upload the paperwork, even though we had raised $4 million, everybody else didn't double opt in. So it they was didn't, over five. I if think they we didn't had 5.5 committed. I think we was like 5.8 or something like that. 5. You're right. 8, yep. And everybody didn't double opt in. When it, the double opt in was only $2.7 million. So I had to go back and raise the other $3 million. And it took me months to get the same kind of momentum and double opt in from everybody. It was crazy. And so we ended up getting close to like 4.5. And on the last day, we pushed everybody to the site. It was right around Christmas. I think we crashed the WeFunder site. And, you know, I'm like proud of that, but also angry about that at the same time. Because we could have, I basically had to raise 4 or $5 million twice. And we still didn't get the full five. We only ended up with 4.5 million. And so just some lessons there. Um, you know, being the first one to raise that much money via equity, via equity crowdfunding cost us about a half a million dollars. Woo! That was a good show, you guys. It was so good, though, that we could not fit it all into one episode. So make sure to tune in for part two. All right. Peace.